Okay. Um, <coughs> I'm just going to read uh, a, a couple of pages. Obviously, as soon as one, one knows one has to read a, an event like this rather than simply a presentation of the book, the, the choice of the passage, I'm anxious that it should be somehow relevant and then, and then immediately anxious that it should not be too relevant and obvious. And, and so I get lost deciding what to, what to read. This is a moment from very near the beginning of the book. Um, the book opens with a, with a young man who's uh, a scientist biologist doing his PhD in London and he receives a phone call from his mother in Delhi his father has just rather unexpectedly died and he flies out to Delhi where the following day uh, the uh, funeral cremation is to take place so here we are uh, on the way to cremation I'll just read a couple of pages here because anthropology always has burial rituals <laughs> How can I not? <laughs> Only in the car did it occur to John to wonder what kind of funeral his mother had arranged. They were in India. He had no idea what an Indian funeral was like. Have you invited a lot of people, he asked. Helen Jane seemed distant. She held her back erect. It was still in the back of John's mind that he might insist on seeing the body at the undertaker's. He felt it was his right and he must not forego it. I beg your pardon, she asked. They drove through the streets following the hearse in the always chaotic traffic. We're going to a Protestant cemetery, she finally said, north of town. It's an old military place. A lot of expats and local Christians use it. They just added a modern crematorium because they're running out of burial space. She frowned at a ramshackle block of low brick buildings thronged with women milling around fruit carts. The Christians here are rather down on cremation, she went on. They tend to insist on those parts of the Bible that suggest the body needs to remain intact until the day of resurrection, she thought. Probably the real hitch is that cremation is a Hindu tradition. It would be easier for the Christians to adopt it if the Hindus did something else, if you see what I mean. John recognized his father's kind of thinking. And the funeral will be at the cemetery, he asked. There is no funeral as such, Alan replied. John fretted. This was not how his father's death should have been. But all his childhood had been lived in the knowledge that other families were in great integrated in the world in a way the Jameses were not. The Jameses were on the move with a mission, always studying and helping wherever they went, but never really part of things. Aside from some exotic vegetation, the cemetery was remarkably English-looking, overgrown and ill-kept. John noticed two or three cloaked figures apparently asleep among the tombstones. Here and there, on their haunches, women hacked at the rough grass with sickles. There were patches of broken red earth, abandoned sheets of corrugated iron. The hearse followed a narrow track along the perimeter wall until it reached a clearing where a low cement building was topped by a conspicuous chimney. It's just me and mum, John realized as he climbed out. Already the undertaker's men were sliding the coffin out onto a bright steel trolley. The thought upset him. Dad loved people. Isn't there anyone else? he asked. His mother was pulling a veil over her eyes. John hadn't noticed that the hat had a veil. She looked like a mourner in a film, tall and upright and gracefully contained in her suffering. John felt like an actor without a part. 
Inside the crematorium, a dozen benches were unevenly lined in the cramped space. At the front was a low brick platform, and against the wall a sort of counter with rollers leading to a purple curtain covering an aperture in the wall. Helen James and her son stood to one side of the door while the men wheeled in the coffin. It seemed improbable with its shiny finish and brass fittings. Isn't anybody going to say anything? John asked. His mother had already begun to walk after the trolley, which clattered and squeaked across the concrete floor. Almost in a panic, John followed. That his father was shut away in that box seemed un inconceivable. I should have seen him lying in it, he thought. I should have said goodbye. Helen James went to sit in the front row. Now John saw there was a large red push button on the wall beside the curtain. He had not expected these feelings. He had never been close to his father. These last few years the man had come to seem an obstacle, an embarrassment. Stumbling into the pew beside his mother, he asked, Can I kiss the coffin? He was sweating, but Helen James sat perfectly erect, staring through the black gauze veil at the gleaming box now placed on the rollers. Looking at her, John sensed that in her mind his mother was accomplishing some private ritual. She had known how these moments would be. She was prepared, she was concentrated. While he felt completely unanchored, his mind prey to a storm of feeling. I have nothing, the words crossed his mind. He left me nothing. And it occurred to John he must get to his feet, run out to the front, kneel before the coffin and kiss it. He would lay his forehead on the polished box. He could see himself doing it. He could taste the polished wood on his lips. His eyes would be closed. His whole body was tense. He must make this dramatic gesture to kiss his father's coffin before it slid into the fire. And again, he mustn't. It would disturb his mother. This was her day. He must not interrupt her last communion with her husband. John felt paralyzed by a sense of inadequacy. He started to shake and had to put his face in his hands. He wanted and he did not want to watch the coffin slide through the curtain. Who would press the button? Do it now, he thought. Do it now. Well, I'll stop there. Before it goes on. Um, well, maybe it'll, it'll come out a little bit as we talk, but John's a very self-confident person until this event in his life. Um, he begins he, he begins to be aware that, that that something's missing, as it were, in these events that, that should be there, but he has no idea what exactly it should be. He doesn't have a model for a funeral, but, but he just feels it shouldn't be this situation here. Also, this book is very much about the son's exclusion from the parent's relationship. Um, and the mother here is, is really not interested in her son's um, grief at all. Um, so, so partly that the scene is setting up the nature of that, of that exclusion. Oh. I don't know how many people here have read your novel. Um, I've read your novel, not surprisingly, and it's worth saying, I think, at the outset that it's a remarkable book in many ways. Um, 
I guess if we're thinking about its relation to anthropology or an anthropological way of thinking about the world, one immediate and superficial theme is that it involves a group of people who enter in various ways into a culture, a way of thinking about the world which is foreign to them. And that is one way of experiencing the world and one's relation to it, which, which is anthropological, I suppose. But in, in, in what you've written about the book, you've talked about many other ways in which the book is anthropological, or you think that there are, you feel there are anthropological themes. Some of that came up in, in what you've written, I think, but, but would you like to say anything about it? Well, um, <laughs> I don't think this book is any, any more about anthropology than any of the other books um, I've written. Probably, probably the books I've written about Italy um, are, are much more kind of up front trying to get to grips with another culture. I, th I think what's evident that when, when somebody like myself changes, change, like I was you know, 25 when I went to live in Italy and didn't know a word of Italian, um, and, and I changed language, I went with an Italian wife that speaks good English, but, but we, we, we switched to Italian. One becomes immensely aware of how, how the culture and and the language above all drives your thinking and, and forms your reactions. And I can say things and, and have arguments in Italian that I certainly can't have uh, in English. I remember the time when talking to somebody offering me work on the phone, I shouted, Ladri, please. And my wife said, oh, <laughs> so, the, uh, all, all my work has been really very, and, and I think, I think the novel, in general, has a secret vocation to combat the myth of the self-contained individual, the individual who decides his life. Because the novel always, or, or mostly, presents us with a, a chorus of people who are themselves in relation to other people. And their, their, their existence is always relational. Um, I feel this very intensely. And, and, and that's what really a, a, a great deal of the novels are about. For example, in this book, somebody's died in a group and everybody has to reorganize their position because this person is dead. Um, and that's going to be very difficult both for the, for the wife and the son. The wife has to choose whether to be a widow or whether to, to, to be open to the approaches. So, I, I don't know how, how anthropological you would put that, but, but all my reading of anthropology, uh, it seems that one of the fascinating issues is the extent to which the rules or, or, or the traditions that govern a society create or are in a, in a an exchange with the individual to create personality, if you can call it, call it that. I think one of the characteristics of the book that's, that's very powerful that, you, you, that you're talking about, I guess, is that it's, it's like people said about Tolstoy, that, that, that Tolstoy, what you feel when you read his books is that he saw everything. And you first you have to see it before you can record it. And that he saw everything. And I think in your book, too, well, I, I certainly had the sense reading it, because you, you take your characters into the most complex situations, and the emotional 
journeys that they're going on are tremendously complex. And as you say, none of the characters exists. There, there isn't a leading... I suppose Helen James is probably at the core of the book, but, but even she is, is, is... Her reality depends on all the other people that she's um, very powerfully surrounded by. And at every moment through this complex, complex journey, partly in this country, partly in India, I felt reading it, I believe every moment. I believe every... That's so sweet. Every, every <laughs> moment I do. And, I mean, and that, I, I guess... Probably more than I do. Well... Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah but, but the, obviously that, the novelist, the novelist's anguish is when he himself can't really properly believe in it, as it were, you know. Um, and, and that's when, when the paper starts getting thrown away because, because they still do write on paper. But what I want to ask uh, is, how did you do that? Um, well, insofar as you think I did do it, or, or it did work for you, how did I do it? Um, one, of the, one of the things is that you don't start a book until it's been around in your mind for a long time. So at the core of this book for me was really this, this marriage relationship where we have a, a, a man who's, who's gone abroad very much not to engage in society but to think about it and a woman beside him who's gone as a doctor, as a helper, um, in, in the classic Western position of, of providing uh, technology for, for other people. And I was fascinated by the polarity in that relationship. So that, that was a lot of it. As far as India was concerned, it was just going out there and, um, and not doing field work. You know? It was just being... I spent one particular month just walking Delhi back and forth every day, taking no notes, never take notes, never take photographs, um, and just let stuff sink in, you know. Then at the end of the at the end of the period, I would write down a few things that that really had impressed themselves on my mind. But but most of that probably doesn't tell you anything at all about how how it actually then turns up on the page. Let me say, we talked a little bit, you said that the book was vaguely based on Bates, and who's a, a rather maverick and curious man who was really an anthropologist, I think, only for a short, short part of his intellectual career. And I had come to Bates, and not through his work in anthropology, but through his work in psychotherapy, where again, tried to say, you know, when, when somebody is mentally ill in a family, we can think of the whole family as, as in some way related to that mental illness, so the family will tell us something about it. So, yeah, he certainly wasn't funny because his father was a geneticist and, and he rejected that kind of genetic determination. So I came to Bates in that way, and then I read Bates's book. So one of the things that fascinated me in Narvan, which is, is probably his most obvious anthropological study, is where he considers the fact that a, a society exists simultaneously in synchrony, and everything explains, or, or, or could presumably be put in relation to it, to every other thing. But that when you sit down and write about it, you have to start somewhere and continue. Um, and then you have to create a linear structure because language is of that nature. And, uh, and that he never knows where to start. And he never knows what detail is more important than any other detail because theoretically they're all of, 
of a similar importance. Um, and I think perhaps one of the one of the differences about narrative is the extent to which it actually exploits linearity of, of language uh, and puts it in relation to chronology. Whereas, whereas anthropology is perhaps trying to, trying to to a certain extent overcome that um, and not be a story but but a construct. So I'm when to get back to your question, why do you believe it? You believe it partly because of of the sequence with which events are put together so that when you get to a certain point um, it's been made believable by by all kinds of hints that are going on in the text. Like you mentioned some something about that money that you said you were interested in. And, and again there's a series of hints in the text about the way money's used in their lives right from the beginning. Can I just um, say something? And since you've raised the issue of the process of writing as a novelist and as an anthropologist, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, a little bit more about the process of, ta of taking elements of Bateson's life and turning them into a kind of semi-novelized form, or taking elements of his ideas as well and turning this into a kind of novelized form. Um, and I, and I, this is a question that interests me because, of course, what an anthropologist does is slightly different from what a novelist does in another way so. than, than the way that you suggested. Um, a, a novelist has, when they transform the details of life, um, transform it in a way to make the story convincing to an audience, which is what we've just been discussing <laughs> with, with David. But when an anthropologist takes the details of life, what, what they do is they feel a sense of responsibility in part to their informants and the reality of that social world. They have that responsibility. And they have responsibility to their audience to make the story compelling. And that audience can be an academic one or a non-academic one. And I wonder whether you'd like to sort of reflect on that by telling us a little bit about how you decided which elements of Bateson's ideas and life to adapt and, and novelize, and which parts of his life not to include. Yeah, okay. I mean, the book's not a novelization of Bateson's life in the sense he's not called Bateson, and I don't think of him as Bateson, and he doesn't marry, you know, um, the, what, what's her name? Margaret, Margaret Mead. Margaret Mead. <laughs> he doesn't marry Margaret Mead. Um, and he finishes in a completely different way from the way Bateson finishes. So, um, I just took the elements of Bateson that interested me, um, and then the elements of his background, which seemed to me to have, to have, pushed him in that direction. What interests me about Bateson is that is the position he reached on um, feeling that that the world was so delicately complex that the conscious mind was such a small part of mind and hence purposeful action was usually informed uh, by only a small part of what was deeply known that anything important in society was probably not understood by the members who were practicing it. Okay. He th thus reached a point where he actually believed that it was very dangerous to act on any information that you had in a purposeful and large-scale way. Um, and so he chased himself into a corner where although he was deeply disturbed about the way the West was going, he nevertheless didn't think it would be appropriate to do anything about it. Um, 
and uh, you know, I, I, I have a, a certain position which is probably not really interesting to go into today about why, about the relationship of a certain kind of intellect to the modern world, which is very similar, very, very similar. Uh, and so what interested me in Bateson's background, which had the parts that I put in, was why did Bateson get into this, into this situation? And, and one of the reasons was he was brought up in a, in a very bizarre family where the, the, the parents were almost fundamentalist scientists, atheist scientists that, that made a religious battle out of their science. At the same time, they, they had paintings of Blake in the house and um, were very great art lovers. But they would always tell their children, uh, art is not for the Bateson family. We can't do that. We do science. So as an older brother who was a scientist and doing well at university and then was killed in the first war, he has a second brother who decides to be an artist and it's a classic case of you know, family polarity. Um, and the father keeps telling him he can't do it, he can't do it, he'll never make money. And, and his girlfriend tells him he can't do it, he'll never make money. And then his girlfriend leaves him. Uh, and, and then he shoots himself um, by the statue of Eros in, in Piccadilly Circus. Uh, and, and then Bateson's like the dumb guy, the family, and he's the last person there. So, Tim, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but you left out one very cunning detail there. Because yeah. uh, Tim's written about this, which I, I, I read it. In his pocket, they found two things. One was a suicide note, yeah. and the other was a poem. Uh-huh. And that, a, a poem. So um, that, that, again, seemed to yeah, absolutely exemplify. Here are the facts, and here's my version yeah. of the facts. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to be rapid as well. <laughs> Another thing, but, but what it, it's a very curious way of communicating to, you know, kill yourself with poems in your pocket and so on. Next to the stuff in um, and Bateson was left with this situation where he had to be the scientist for his father. He wanted to be the artist, but it was clearly not a wise course after what had happened to his brother. And anthropology for him was definitely seen as some kind of strange <laughs> new world that might bridge the gap between his two particular problems. And, and, and you can see the way he felt that the intervention that his father had taken with his brother had been devastating and dangerous. Uh, you, you can see that hope that Bateson had in the, in the first um, page of Haman when he calls on anthropologists to try and capture the ethos of a culture as well as its structure in the way that novelists, he suggests, capture the ethos of a, of a society in their novels. With one important difference, the anthropologist reveals the structure or can leave it implicit. Or leave it, yeah, yeah. You know, we thought we might read this, but maybe we won't, but there are just one or two lines that are very interesting, where he uses words like, um, I think the word almost is always very interesting in Bateson. Um, uh, probably I can't find it right away. He's, he's, he's just talking about this big difference between the way artists um, can describe a culture the artist is content to describe culture in such a manner that many of its premises and interrelations of its parts are implicit in, its, in his composition. He can leave a great many of the most fundamental aspects of, a, of culture to be picked up, not from his actual words, but from his emphasis. He can choose words whose very sound is more significant than their dictionary meaning. 
That's, a, that's a, such a problematic area, isn't it? And he can so group and stress them that the reader almost unconsciously receives information. And uh, Bates, and this is early Bates, but in his life more and more he begins to realise that the words just don't do the job. You know, there's no word for almost unconsciously. Um, but that's the word he would like to have if he could have it, a slightly different state of knowing and not knowing. Um, and what interests me a lot about Bateson is his desire to say things that are not easily put in words and certainly not easily counted. Can I, can, can I yeah. take you up on, on, the, on the question of things being implicit and otherwise? At the beginning of your book, um, there is... Um, you write this, those familiar with Gregory Bateson and his work will realise that I have used elements from his life and writings to create the character of Oliver James. Um, equally, it would be clear that only some aspects of their <laughs> lives are similar. Right. Now, you could have done something different. You could have used what you had garnered from your reading and your reflection on Bateson to create the character and not drawn attention to that. No, I had to do that because I could otherwise something's going to accuse me of plagiarism or stuff like that. You know, writers have to do this nowadays. Thirty years ago, you wouldn't have bothered. But it has a very powerful effect on the way yeah, in which the I book is liked it, actually, yeah. in the end. I thought you might. No, I mean, basically, I want to disappear. Um, that, I mean, I think that's basically my mental state, generally, that I would like not kind of too, um, to be too obvious, too obviously present. I'm going to read one other bit that I plan to read, which is in slightly shorter, where, um, because the plot begins when, at the funeral, after the funeral, an American arrives who's determined to write a biography of the great man, um, and the wife doesn't know whether to let him or not, or whether to help him, um, and she doesn't even really know whether she likes him or not, but perhaps she likes him rather a lot, so it's, it's, it, this, biographer, the man who's most interested in her husband, also presents himself as the man who might or might not reopen her life. So that's in a simple plot structure. However, here's the biographer who, on discovering that that our man Albert James uh, was uh, had such economic problems that he had to teach in a girls' school in Delhi, goes to the school to find out what he was teaching and this is again vaguely based on Bateson and some lessons that Bateson had given, but only vaguely. Uh, so this is a religious school, um, girls' school, and he goes into the classroom with the sister. Girls shouted the sister in a surprisingly loud voice. I'm not going to do the Indian act or the American act. They wriggled on their thighs in their green and gold uniforms. It was a pleasantly old-fashioned classroom with desks straight from the 50s. Girls, this American visitor is writing a book about your wonderful old teacher, Mr. James. He wishes to ask you some questions. Since he is a man of some achievement, I hope you will want to show him the utmost respect. The girls looked at the bulky American and tittered. Paul tried to smile. It hadn't occurred to him what a powerful experience it would be to stand in front of a class of alert adolescent girls. There was a strong animal odour in the room. Leaning against the teacher's desk, he tried to present himself as both vigorous and relaxed. Girls, 
I just wanted to know if you young people had any stories you could tell me about the way Albert James taught you. Paul found it unsettling that Sister Nirmala had decided to stay in the room. There might be things they wouldn't say in the nun's presence. Some of the girls glanced at each other. There was whispering in Hindi. They all wore their hair in gleaming black pigtails. Come on now, girls, said the sister briskly. Everyone knows you adored Mr. Albert. He was a lot of fun for us, a voice eventually said. In what way? Paul asked. Nobody has ever failed his exams, said a bright face. There were giggles. It was curious to think of lanky, abstruse Albert James driving out here three times a week to stand up in front of these kids. There was something disquieting about their imprisoned liveliness, their masked femininity. He asked us to draw the weather, one girl said. To draw the weather. And invent new insects, said another. Mr. James liked to apply very experimental methods, the sister agreed. Then we had to think of ways to change the world to suit the new insect we had drawn or the new weather we invented. Sometimes he took a film of the lesson, said a voice. We looked at it on the computer. Why did he do that, Paul asked. Did he tell you? Nobody answered. Whenever a girl spoke out, she became individual and defined, but when they all shut their mouths, they were one silent animal. In the front row, a small girl was picking at the skin round her fingernails. She wouldn't look up. But what do you think, casting your minds back now, what do you think the main thing Mr. James was trying to teach you was? I mean, if you could sum it up in a few words. He taught science, said a voice. The man didn't mean that, another girl protested and burst into giggles. Sporadic voices rose as if released from a hushed expectation. Finally, a solemn, full-cheeked girl in the second row said, Mr. James told us that even when a lesson is about spiders or snakes, it is also about all of us in the classroom. He said, what you are drawing, that is who you are, and who your ancestors were. The way you draw an elephant is India. The history of India, somebody said, and the future. So, those are his famous lessons. show off a lot I think um, but there's, there's just a feeling of, of constant stressing of connectedness and the impossibility of any objective position I mean I think if Bateson stopped field study it was because he just gave up on the idea of that of, of arriving of saying anything about the things that most interested him um, because, because he realised that this position of if, if there's secret complicity between the anthropologist and the artist, it's the feeling that, insofar as I talk about society, I detach myself from it. So 
such is the nature of language. If I detach myself from it, I can't engage in it anymore or be part of its forward movement. Um, Barbara Pinn's book, a, a Few Green Leaves, where a rather sad middle-aged lady anthropologist or early middle-aged called Emma, obviously named after Jane Austen's great Emma, goes to a little village um, to write a field study of the village. And obviously, immediately, there are various people proposing themselves as possible husbands, you know, the clergyman, the widow clergyman, and, and so on. And what's interesting there is she has a very strong sense of the way everything's encoded in language. The more she becomes aware of language, the more difficult it is for her to engage in conversations with people because she's so busy observing what they're saying. Um, and the book's very much about a kind of a, the kind of way she makes life impossible her, for herself by observe, observing it, and in fact won't end up with any of the men, but because in the position she's in, she's really not part of it at all. Um, so. I like that. John, I'm kind of struck listening to you talk by. Well, something you said earlier about when you were wandering <coughs> around the streets of Delhi that you didn't take notes. And maybe that typifies one way of thinking about the world. There's one way of, re uh, of relating to the world which requires that you do take notes, and there's another Absolutely. that you don't, right? Absolutely, and yeah. listening to you talk, you seem to be able to play both games simultaneously. Do you Good feel. Memory. Do, you, <laughs> do you take mental notes? Yeah, I do, obviously, yeah. Uh, Consciously? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but often those are not the details that count, funnily enough. You know, it's often only when you're writing that that suddenly so much. you start writing something that... Uh, for example, in, 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 in this book, when she goes to scatter his ashes in the river as he had asked, um, she doesn't scatter them in the river, she scatters them on a, a monument some girls who had, had drowned in an accident when a coach went off the river, uh, off the bridge. Um, well, I mean, that memorial there I had seen but hadn't made even the slightest mental note of it. You know, it was just there. And then later, for various reasons, it seemed appropriate that this should happen. Well, I don't, I don't know. When I, the, the taking notes is very funny. I did a book on, did a book on football in Italy. It was not really about football, it's about the guys I used to hang out with at the stadium because I was a season ticket holder for 10 years at our local stadium. So I did a season where I went to all the away games as well. And these guys are famous for being violent and unpleasant. And actually, they're, they're, they're delightful. Um, and it was fun to do this, but uh, I didn't take any notes um, because if I'd taken any notes, I'd probably have been killed, you know. Um, and it's very funny reading. Um, Bill Buford's book, Among the Thugs, where he deliberately sets out to write about thugs and completely misunderstanding that a lot of these people are, you know, cannot be categorized as thugs. And he used to rush into the bathroom to take notes. Um, doesn't he have a memory? I don't know. Can't, can't remember what people said. Does he really think he can't reinvent it afterwards anyway? I mean, he's not. Anyway, I can see why the anthropologist would. Um, I'm Tim, I just want 
Now, this is interesting. This is absolutely what fascinates me. Useful knowledge, yeah. okay? Is anthropology useful knowledge? Um, I think it's useful. I mean, in the sense that one uses it. <laughs> um, it's useful. It's, no, it is not useful knowledge in the basic sense of knowledge that's um, judged by its utility. But it's tempting. But it's tempting. It immediately it's presents not, itself yeah. to a politician as material that he can manipulate. Which was uh, Bateson's problem, that he was manipulated. Absolutely. I mean, when he did this work on families and talking, Bateson just spent months and months in the famous Palo Alto um, psychiatric hospital talking to schizophrenics and finally began to take this position on schizophrenics, which, frankly, has been very strongly validated by the literature since then. Not in terms, perhaps, of the causative nature of, of the illness, but in terms of the theatre around the uh, around the schizophrenia. And then he was simply appalled when people tried to take that information and say, let's use this to help people get better. And he said, no, no, you can't do that. You know, they'll only get worse. And, um, and so, I mean, his position was quite extreme and he immediately dropped everything and ran away and he ended up studying communication amongst dolphins. I, I think because... Like my own feeling is that Bateson genuinely began to feel that perhaps that was the only thing that wouldn't be manipulated that, that he did. Um, but both novelists, I'm sure there are anthropologists, a wide range of anthropologists with different positions on this, I'm sure there are anthropologists who do believe that their work has a usefulness. Uh, well, there's another de way of defining usefulness, which uh. is the way that a lot of anthropologists would define it in the sense that what you do is you, again, allow people reflect upon their, their unthought, habitual categories of thought. Uh -huh. So very often anthropology brings itself in relation to But why would that be projects. useful? Uh, because it allows them to think differently and to organize differently. Yes, It reminds me of uh, something that happened to me some years ago. I wrote a book... Um, Oh, many 20 years ago, about um, field work I'd done in Zimbabwe to do with conceptions of power, uh, particularly the way in which uh, political leadership in the countryside allied itself to religious leaders in the countryside. Um, some years after that, after I'd, I'd pretty much left anthropology as a way of living my life, I was working on a film in uh, Israel, Stroke, Palestine. And as part of the research that I was doing, I was um, asked to go and meet a, a journalist who had been, this is, gives an indication of how long ago this is, who was the first person to write about the first intifada. He was the first person who had watched these young Palestinian people throwing stones at the Israeli army and to, to, to register that there was something going on here. Okay. Uh, because of the uh, nature of the film that I was um, due to write, I was taken to meet this guy in um, in, in Gaza, um, and uh, with with the guy who was going to direct the film. And we were uh, due to meet him at some time, two o'clock in the afternoon, whatever it was. And we arrived at the house, and um, the, the minutes went by, and we were waiting for him to arrive. And it was five past, and ten past, and twenty past. And we were thinking, well, I mean, I'm sure this journalist is very, very busy and has important things to do, but nonetheless. Um, we're getting a little bit impatient now um, 25 past and half past and so on and then eventually he arrived and he said I'm very very sorry to um, uh, to be late um, 
And, and we were introduced, and they said, oh, this is a man called Judd Nehman, who's directed from this something called David Lamb, who's uh, going to write the film. And there's a pause, and he looked at me um, with a very weird expression on his face. And then he went back into the room that he'd come out of, and he emerged with this book I'd written. And he said, I'm very, very sorry to have kept you waiting, but um, I was reading your book, and I wanted to get to the end of the chapter. Oh, I always considered that the best review I've ever had. <laughs> um, and in terms of utility, I didn't ask any more questions, but I was, <laughs> I was very pleased by that. Um, I, I guess that's the best answer I can, I can give. extraordinary about the first part of the 20th century was the hands-on way everybody believed that populations could be moved around, changed, um, you know, the people in the South Tyrol could be easily switched to Albania, the people in, uh, you know, the people in this part of Greece could be moved to that part of Turkey and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and, and finally, there does seem to be at least a perception that it's not so easy to move, move large bodies of people around, although in Africa these kind of things are going on all the time. Um, I, th I, I think, you know, to look at what anybody's saying, you have to look at where they're coming from, which is what I do with Bateson. In my own life, it's probably terribly easy for you to place me if I tell you that I grew up the son of a an extremely evangelical clergyman who for a long period was also into the charismatic movement involving exorcisms including an exorcism of my brother against his will uh, and, and I'm sure that's led me to never want to be hands on as it were in the, in the religious way and, and so that as I read I probably look with, with a certain curiosity and interest for figures who seem to call to me um, <coughs> in different ways. And I, I certainly particularly dislike novels, for example, that, that seem... I actually don't believe... Uh, I don't believe that novels have, have any political value uh, or political impetus anymore. But I think novel, rather novelists use their politics to please and call to the reader um, to indicate I have the same politics that you have um, and so on and so forth I, I truly love that so I think as you read through my work it, it's probably extremely <laughs> difficult to get any idea of what my political position might be on on large range of things how useful that is to anybody I don't know so do you think much about about other novelists who who done similar uh, explorations of other cultures, uh, journeys into other parts of the world through their books. Are there people you're particularly interested in? Like, I think of Tolstoy's writing about the Caucasus, for example, or Ian Forster's an obvious person in India, or is anyone no, who's... No, I don't. I mean, I must say, the whole Anglo-Indian thing, as I was reading through some, some of that material, I just got totally alien to all that. Um, because? But no. Just in uh, Forster's work, particularly, uh, it seems so. Like, I don't believe I understood anything about India. I 
you know, I don't, I don't pretend to know anything about India. It would be a, a completely mad, or even, or even the English engagement with India. India in, in this book was a massive distraction, a, a place where, where this man has gone partly because India presents itself as something that beyond any influence or damage that anybody could, could try to do to it. Um, and for the son, he, the son begins to realize that his father's invitation to him to explore India is an invitation to look at complexity and to move to a state of contemplation and wonder rather than a state of narrowness and activity. Um, it's basically an invitation to get lost. Um, yeah. and, and that's, that's how I felt about India. About, no, my, my, you know, my, my favorite other authors, uh, I can't think of one of them who's exploring other cultures. Who are your favorite other authors? Henry Green, uh, Beckett, the novels, um, Thomas Bernhardt, not so well known in England as he should be. Um, Those are all, uh, the three you mentioned, all explorers of inner space, dead. aren't they? They're all dead, yes. Aren't which, like living <laughs> um, <they're> <laughs> Apart from that, they're, they're, they're all inward lookers, aren't they? Beckett, oh, yeah. Uh, Henry yeah, Green. And, yeah. Well, well Bernhardt and Beckett, at least in the novel, right, have, have, have got a lot in common. Uh, they, they're all interested in language. I mean, it, it does seem that what, one thing that we, we were talking before about whether you, whether you spoke ben, Bengali or not, the, the language of the people that, that you're presently studying, um, and you said you're working on that and that you do speak. But, you know. I mean, tell us how your perception of the thing changed as you gradually became proficient in the language. Which are then difficult to explain in English? Um, they're not impossible to explain because we are, as Anthony is about to point out, we are all humans communicating, which is in part based on this point. So I would never argue that there, is, there are things that are impossible to convey, um, that there, there will be parallels, and that the actual search is, in a sense, for those parallels in order to make Parallels. But this is something that is I mean, engaged what, you as well. In your yeah, I mean. Parallels, I don't know what parallels are exactly. I mean, they're, they're similar things that happen, but how similar? As I, the, the longer I stay in Italy, the more impossible it is to say anything about Italy. Um, the, mo the more you actually feel the language. I mean, I arrived when I was 24, 25, and I didn't speak any Italian. You know, so gradually you discover Italian, then you begin to read Italian literature. And get back to Dante by a few years ago in the original. Um, and, and the more you, the more you get drenched in that ethos and and all its interrelation with each other, frankly, the less it even begins to seem sensible to try to say much about it. And you begin to think, 
well, maybe the Guardian are right to send it at a journalist who knows absolutely nothing about it, as they, they never do, because the more you know about it, the more you'd realize it's pointless writing an article in the newspaper to try and explain what just happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think maybe the I'm sure that these positions actually are just two positions that people either take or don't take. I'm sure this is an entirely instinctive thing. There is, I mean, European languages also communicate with each other and constantly changing. And, um, and yes, in India, you know, it's wonderful listening to all the English words dropping, and, and you didn't even know it was English until somebody explained and things like that. But I, I genuinely believe that there's a deep ethos in the way people speak to each other which is such that a word means deeply something to somebody in a way it doesn't mean to somebody who's just learned the language, it doesn't mean it to me even in Italian because I didn't grow up with certain things being said to me how much that matters I don't know, I mean otherwise it's completely defeatist and you can't say anything at all but and one is ever more suspicious of language. One is ever more suspicious of the way we put language uh, on a pedestal as a wonderful and beautiful thing and put literature up there too as, as a sort of non plus ultra and beyond any criticism. And it seems to me that a lot of language and literature actually distances us from reality and prevents us from engaging in, uh, in ways we would normally do. So, um, should we? Yes,
absolutely. Yeah. Well, it depends whether I'm buying a car or you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what what can one say? One thing is that the book changes and confesses that it changes position as it progresses because of its deepening engagement, both with itself as a book and over the period with the with the culture. Um, somebody, you know, I have somebody in in my book say that that on on reading Bateson, it seemed to her at the start that he had something terribly important to communicate and spent the whole of the book making sure that this important thing <laughs> did not get said. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I do think that there, there's, there's a kind of deep perversity in Bateson's psychology, but at the same time, he genuinely despaired of reaching a position that he could not immediately demolish looking at it from another position. And above all, he was aware that there was an awful lot going on that cannot be put down as a series of observations in writing. Which is why when he started the study in Bali, he started introducing photography and suggesting that there was an intimate relationship between different kinds of gestures in completely different situations and that if only one could grasp that one would one would understand but to understand would really be to be part of the community of course so um, in, in the end the whole thing reads to me as an attack on on language and methodology rather than rather than any final conclusions about what was going on with that strange ritual it is a wonderful ritual he describes. Uh, let me just give you one tiny paragraph on the second page. Where he's giving you all this stuff about about how he's. He does mention Arabia Deserta. Does anybody know Charles Dalton's Arabia Deserta? It is the, the craziest piece of writing you will ever read. Is that fourteen volumes? You can get a very short, condensed version. He tried to write it in an English that copied Arabic. Okay, so the whole thing is constructed in very bizarre sentences with a completely alien syntax. Whether it sounds remotely like Arabic, of course, we can't know because in English you don't speak like that, so it's bizarre. But he, after saying all that and talks, he just says, the present work is a description of certain ceremonial behavior of the Yakmal people of New Guinea in which men dress as women and women dress as men and an attempt, crude and imperfect, since the technique is new, to relate this behavior not only to the structure and pragmatic functioning of Yakmal culture, but also to its ethos. I think by ethos he means everything we can't really understand. Yes, the original excerpt was about how
yeah, basically, I mean, it, one of the things that's interesting about anthropology is that it's a way it's, a lot of it's been the first world looking at the third world, um, if you want to use those awful terms, and then, then reflecting on how difficult it is for one to understand the other. D.H. Lawrence, who spent a lot of his... Well, D.H. Lawrence is a writer, I could have mentioned, one of my great favorites. Much of his work had a slightly yeah. anthropological flavor yeah. to it. Um, and he came to the conclusion among the Indians in New Mexico that to understand them would be death to himself. <coughs> that, that it would require... <coughs> that he would have to die to himself to understand their mental state of these, of these people. Um, whenever the question of ritual comes up in the, in the James family, um, somebody starts talking about money. Because, because money is really the only baseline of communication that's, that's left to these people in, in the absence of any knowledge about how, how they are actually living. So it's usually an argument about money when, when, when a ritual is missing. satisfied that what you wrote communicated what you thought you were communicating and you only need to write a book and talk to other people about it to realize that, that, that they got a completely different line than the one you thought you were offering I only had my own experience in Italy my growing feeling that and already when I wrote these three books about Italy I would have chapter headings usually with one Italian word that's untranslatable because usually around a word that doesn't translate, there is a, a kind of little agglomeration of cultural activity. There's a little story, an anecdote, um, that you can then unfold. But, uh, but suddenly reading a book doesn't know what it means to feel Italian. Or, these things are all uh, intangible. And lang language is incredibly arrogant, the way it imagines it can it can engage with everything. Um, part, part of the, the, the center of this book, there's a marriage where, which is clearly in a certain way functional, but it's functional because nothing is said about the nature of this marriage. And it, it finally comes out, it's a very complicated marriage. Um, and we even begin to get the feeling that the anthropologist figure in the book is actually sending messages, coded messages, to his wife in, 
in the academic articles he writes, that, that in a way her reading of those, of those articles is somehow for, for her. Okay. Certainly this is not beyond novelists to write novels that are messages to people around them. Yeah, let's let's be let's be bewildered by all this by all means. <laughs> Can I ask David a question in relation to this within the limits of, of language? Um, and you of course are engaged in more than just representation through language. You're a director of plays, and I wondered whether you felt that plays are working in a different way in relation to what they imagine for people sort of semi semi conscious from the way that language works. Well, uh, yes, I, I guess I could try and say something about that. There was a period in my life when I, when I was trying to do both things at the same time. I, I, I didn't, at the time that I was uh, trying to be an anthropologist, I was writing plays as opposed to directing them. So I was engaged to some extent in that, in that problem as you described it. I guess what I used to think about this is that, I don't know what I think anymore, but I think what I used to think about it was that there was some sort of analogy between the sense of coherence um, that Chris was talking about, that when you, uh, and, and to some extent what you're talking about, Tim, I think, is this, I, I mean, let me, let me take a little um, side um, route. I'm really interested when you talk about language as arrogant, that language, the arrogance of language is its claim or its assumed claim that it can go anywhere and do anything and achieve anything. Because, and, and you seem to be saying, Tim, that you, by calling that an arrogance, that, that there is some assumption behind that 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 is not the case. And, and in fact, this is what you're asking me about, Laura, is what about all those things that language can't achieve? But actually, one of the points of, of all... Point is, is, is the wrong way of putting it. But one of... I mean, it, 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 the experience of working in language, of spending one's life, or a lot of one's life, uh, focusing on language in the way that a writer does, is to try and keep pushing on into the territories Mm, that previously absolutely. one had thought language couldn't get into, mm -hmm. and whether you end up writing something which is acceptable to a uh, academic in an academic context or to a, a publisher who publishes novels, or whether it ends up as a poem or a piece of journal, whatever, one's always trying to push on into undiscovered territories. Is true. I mean, I guess I That's thought, right. uh, you know. Well, I mean, you certainly you can take the position of somebody like Beckett, who basically says, "No, let's blow the whistle on language." Let's not push it anywhere else. Let's show it not working. Uh, yeah, but Beckett also had a very interesting experience, which you, I'm sure you know of. Which, Beckett, who had spent much of his life seriously depressed and trying to, uh, trying to escape from his depression, mm -hmm. had a critical experience standing at the edge of a um, pier looking out into the blackness Famous. of the sea, yeah, yeah. famously going, and when, the moment when he discovered actually depression was his subject, mm -hmm. that that is what, and he spent the rest of life, writing fantastically creatively. But, you know, so language, he was able to take language into an area that he previously was encouraged. Um, I, I don't know, I, I, I guess I used to think that in the theatre, one of the things one tries to do in writing and then staging or producing a, a, a play is create a sense of a coherence and unity, a world. You try to create the sense of uh, verisimilitude. This is a real world in which real people are making uh, partly will, partly unwilled actions um, in the same way or there's but not in the same way but in a similar way or there's some analogy between the way in which writing and ethnography you try and create a sense of coherence um, uh, the, 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 the interesting point here I think is, is what create it or simply be, a, be aware of it in ethnography 
Well, it's a good question. I mean, and, it, and it's something you've written a, about a bit, I think, Tim, is the question of the extent to which one is creating in, 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 in reporting. I mean, I reached a kind of crisis for myself in uh, living as an anthropologist because I, that sort of broke down for me. I got, I got as far as I could get in reporting in the sense of thinking, I have been here, I have seen these things, and now I am coming back to another place, and I'm going to try and describe them. And I kind of felt I took that as far as I could take it, and then I didn't know what I was doing anymore, because I kind of <laughs> lost the sense of, who am I? Who am I talking about? I don't know what's going on here. Um, and, and, and So, to try and answer your question, Laura, I think there are a series of analogies, but if you push any of them, they, they break down. Um, but, it, it, but, but I don't feel the arrogance of language. I suppose I feel more it's, um, it's, it's courage, really, in constantly moving into new territories. Mm -hmm. No? You don't agree? No, no, no yeah, we don't agree, no. but yes, it's, no. you know, it's some, I've felt that sometimes. I, think, I just think there are so many assumptions about what language can do. Um, and, and, and it's so rare for us to understand how perverse it can be in taking over our thoughts and pushing them along metal ways. Um, what's so wonderful about that, uh, Barbara Pinbrook, A Few Green Leaves, is the way you slowly begin to get the feeling that everybody is simply repeating a series of formulas that, um, uh, that this society has produced and that it's almost impossible to say anything in this society which is not... so that people actually begin to know what everybody's going to say before they say it. Sure. You know, it's just, it's sure. Of course it's true. You know. <laughs> Journalists particularly. Yeah. Sure. the novel frames anthropology and then think how anthropology frames art. Um, the, the novel sees the, the anthropologist as, as one, one more scientist engaged in the uh, optimistic and, and perhaps at the end not entirely successful process of, of recording sites. So not, a, a novelist is going to be ironizing the ambitions of the Anthropologist is seeing art as a function within a society, presumably, or as, as, a, as something that, that is operative within a society. And Bateson saw art as a way of keeping society in a steady state, partly by reminding people of complexity. Um, but I don't know if any of that will help you. I mean, 
the, the problems when you're writing a novel is it seems to me much more of a problem than when you're working as a journalist or, or as anybody who's supposed to be reporting is honesty. Like for me, if I'm writing an article about something that's happened in Italy, which I don't do anymore, but if I do that, honesty is really not a problem because I'll just be honest. I'll just say what happened, you know. It's the same when I did the football. I just said what happened. But when you're writing a novel, um, you know, there are all kinds of ways you can take it. And above all, aesthetically, it just might be much more efficient to do this or to do that. Um, and I, I think that is very difficult when you're writing. changed my position. I now believe that anthropology is extremely useful. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think that's what we were saying. We were saying that, that the idea that one is collecting a series of facts in order to engage in a project of social engineering, it, it's obviously useful when you go to a different country to find out what time the bars will be open, you know, um, who would ever deny such matters, or, or how not to see in lower class when you go into Marx and Spencer's, but but that's not what we're talking about. Um, I think Bateson made one beautiful remark on this when he, when he said that using the information that we have gathered to try and alter society in any way is like reversing a truck with ten containers on the back through a maze. Okay. Um, the chances of you doing that, obviously, are pretty much zero. Every um, but, you know, but everybody has different positions and of course 
in the end, some leader is going to have to take decisions about stuff and take it on the basis of some information. So uh, let's just hope they get it right. Just decide. Just decide. Or do both. Just decide. Or do both. Or do both. Yeah. 
When you do both, you have a huge problem. I've, you know, I've been there with this stuff. When you do both, you have a huge problem that in the first thing, you use all kinds of material and say things in one way that then begins to make, begins to block what you do the second time. Basically, it's incredibly difficult to decide what to do. And, and, and if, if you're interested in writing something about an experience like that, and obviously both methods are imperfect. Or, you, know, you just have to go where you're going to go at the end of the day. I mean, this is what's so infuriating about language, that there's absolutely nothing that can explain what will happen in your head the moment you just go for it one way or the other. And then change your mind. <laughs> In some states, I don't see it as a conflict. It's a really, really useful tension between anthropologists and history. And of course, you will know being anthropologists that many anthropologists now include novelized sections in their texts. Oh, do you really? Yeah, yeah. There's a very wonderful book by Roxanne Balbi from The Warring Soul that's set in Iran. And because she wants to write about the experience of young men at the war front during the Iran Iraq war, she can't do that and reveal that. outside often. <laughs> let, me, let me say that I, I really find that method you talk about of the lady there in Iran, I would have all kinds of trouble with that. I, I, you know, um, to introduce into it supposedly the scientific in the sense of I have done everything I can to be objective text. A section where you begin to put a spin on everything else that's been said by taking a position which is only what you subjectively think are the feelings of other people, it does begin to look very risky to me. I think, um, um, I, I think it's better to make up your mind one way or the other, frankly. <laughs> it's, it's a failure to decide what to do, it seems to me, rather than that. Yeah. Anyway, what do you think about it, David? I'm, I'm with you on on that. Um, I, 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 where I find it difficult, Laura, is, is your sense of it's a conflict, not a problem. I, I find it, yes, I mean, when you've achieved it, perhaps, you can look at it and say, yes, well, I, well why did it seem so traumatic? I think these are really, 
I, I, I'm more in sympathy with, with what the way you express your problem, really. Um, I, I think it is very difficult to do. I mean, ultimately, Tim's advice, which is just leap into the dark, just do it, uh, just, do it. Just, just trust um, that you have something interesting to say is fine um, when you're writing the novel or when you're writing the play, in my case, or whatever it is that you're trying to write. When you're trying to write... The, I guess one of the things is to think about who you're writing for and who is the audience. But I would also say, what are you trying to achieve? And what is the effect you're trying to have with this piece of writing? I take a slightly less um, pietistic view than, than some of the other people have expressed, as perhaps my little anecdote expresses. Um, I, th I think there is some careful use that can be put um, the information that one gathers. But, um, but, 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 but I, I think there is a, a moment that you have to jump and um, I'm not worried too much um, but that's true whichever way, whichever audience you're, you're facing maybe it's more who you want to be than what you want to achieve you know. because if you start writing novels you become a novelist um, it doesn't really work like that <laughs> you don't start going I want to be a novelist therefore I will write a novel no, no but it's a question no but I do genuinely believe that actually in retrospect I wanted to be a person who did this. Now, I know the way you put it sounds... I remember a very particular moment. I had been to university, studied literature. I came to that awful moment when you're going to finish the university, you know. What did I do all this, all this stuff for? Um, I'm looking for jobs, I'm being offered jobs, and I'm turning them down at the last minute because I suddenly realized I don't want to be that. And, and I do say to myself, this is the one area where if I manage to get, get it, it'll feel like I, what I wanted to do. So, so yes, you know. Then, then I had to ne not tell anybody for 10 years because nobody would publish me. But, but that was a different matter. When, when finally one could say, yeah, I do novels and, and obviously don't run around saying I'm a novelist. But, but it was a nice moment, that's for sure. No. Well, that's what I was trying to say. Oh, where, where, like, say once you, you start know. writing the novels and organising mental life in that way, mm. you know, okay, you might stop. I mean, you might just do one. But if you keep doing it, you know, you, your mental life's going to be the mental life of a person who's constantly organising the mental world as possible novels. I mean, you, you must do that with plays. You must be constantly thinking, hmm... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a very that is a, 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 a yeah, common I mean, experience. Exactly as you describe yeah. it. Yeah. Then your wife can't understand you. Not, not that you wanted to, or that she ever did, or that you ever understood.